Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to episode 104 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And this week we have a special guest. We have Frank Holmes with us. He is the CEO of U.S. Global Investors. They are out of San Antonio, Texas, and they have uh, quite a few, I think, nine uh, mutual funds as well as ETFs specializing in natural resources, especially gold. And uh, with Frank, we're going to talk about uh, macroeconomics and how uh, gold fits in there, as well as other commodities, the uh, effect of China and India on uh, the global economy, what's going on with the U.S. dollar, the U.S. economy, as well as um, cryptocurrencies. Uh, Frank is deeply involved with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. He's the chairman of uh, a blockchain company out of Vancouver. This podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. They're a group of 17 companies exploring, developing, and mining in the Yukon. Two places to look for their information are yukonminingalliance.ca, and on Twitter, they're at investyukon. One event they're organizing in Toronto on May 30th is a Invest Yukon Toronto event with the presentations by the Premier of Yukon, Sandy Silver, and... Ranj Pillai. He's the Minister of Economic Development and the Minister of Energy, Mines, and Resources. So if you want more information on that, just contact the Yukon Mining Alliance. And a little bit of news out of their group, White Gold Corp. They are uh, getting underway with a $9 million exploration program for 2018. And that company is backed by Agnico Eagle Mines and Kinross Gold. Our second sponsor is the Grasso Group out of Vancouver, led by Joe Grasso, and they specialize in Argentina with all different commodities. And their three companies there are Golden Arrow Resources, Argentina Lithium and Energy, and Blue Sky Uranium. Blue Sky Uranium has just engaged Chuck Edwards, a PNG, as a technical advisor to assist in planning and managing beneficiation and metallurgical studies and processes at the Ivana Uranium Vanadium Deposit and the Amarillo Grande Project in uh, Rio Negro province of Argentina. For more information, you can go to grossogroup.com, their website, and that will lead you to uh, all three companies. And we'll come back after this break with commodity prices and some news around commodities. is the commodity everyone's talking about this week. It is above $71. 
as the um, U.S. pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. It's interesting, but uh, it rallied, but uh, the rally lost some steam because uh, people are starting to think the um, Iran sanctions that are looming by the U.S. uh, could be countered by Saudi Arabia's um, stepping up their uh, production. So at $71, crude is trading at its highest level since 2014, and West Texas Intermediate for June delivery is now at 71.36. This is on uh, Thursday, May 10th. Brent is up at 77.47 a barrel in the futures market. Here's a good quote from uh, Brian LaRose. He's a technical analyst uh, in Jersey City. He says, uh, there are plenty of players throughout the world, OPEC and non-OPEC, shale, that could easily step in and fill any void here that might be created by a loss of Iranian barrels. Now that the dust has settled, folks are realizing maybe this isn't as bullish as we initially thought. So um, we may have uh, reached a peak here for the short term on uh, oil prices. Let's take a quick look at precious metals. Gold um, has risen a little bit lately. It's up 13.2130, holding above 1300 nicely. Silver 1670, platinum 925, palladium 995. Everything's um, holding kind of flat right now, rhodium flat at uh, 1880. Over in the base metals, we have copper is uh, up a bit, $3.12 a pound, nickel 627, aluminum $1.05 a pound, zinc $1.39, and lead $1.04. So things are kind of steady there. Copper seems to be the best of the bunch. Sticking around with base metals at the moment, you know, the Iron Ore Company of Canada, they have a strike going on. It's, it's now into their sixth week. That's a Rio Tinto subsidiary. And that means close to 3 million tons of lost production. And uh, they originally had a target of 20 million tons for this year. So um, if the strike uh, keeps going, they might have a total production of 15 to 16 million tons. The IOC is the third largest supplier of seaborne pellets in the world. And they have a market share of around 10% of that. So it's starting to affect um, the global steel industry a little bit, especially Europe, where that, a lot of that production goes to. The uranium oxide price, at least according to the uh, UXC consulting site, the spot price is at 21.75, and just the chart looks really good. It's, uh, of course, you know, it's been ter- a terrible uh, six, seven years for uranium producers, but uh, it looks like it's bottoming and starting to rise, so things are, I think th- the worst is over. <laughs> I'm not an investor, but... Uh, so things look pretty good there. And the Conference Board of Canada came out with a um, study on the three territories, their GDP outlook. Boy, though, all three territories are so tied into mining. Now, the Yukon is the best of the three. It looks like their GDP growth is expected to reach 8.1% this year. Nunavut is in the middle, expected to hit 4.4% in 2018. And the Northwest Territories, because diamond production is beginning to fall, it looks like the GDP there uh, may contract by 2.9% this year. This is according to the Conference Board of Canada. Here's just a bit of note about the Yukon. They say the last few years have been difficult. Um, They comment that the economic prospects in the Yukon should begin to improve this year as the life of its only remaining mine has been extended and three new mines are scheduled to open over the next 10 years. Construction will also be an important contributor to Yukon's economy over the next few years. 
with Victoria Gold's Eagle project coming online and a slower ramp up in construction on Gold Corp's coffee project. Construction output is expected to fall in 2019, but grow by almost 40% per year in 2020 to 2021. All told, Yukon's real GDP growth is forecast to reach 8.1% this year, following a 1.6% contraction in 2017. Now, after the break, we'll come back with Frank Holmes and uh, got to apologize right off the bat. The quality of my voice recording with the uh, Frank Holmes interview is off. My my gain is off. So it's a little rough, but uh, it, it's uh, listenable. <laughs> and uh, yeah, after the break, we'll come back with Frank. We're joined by Frank Holmes here. How are you doing, Frank? Well, thank you. Uh, Frank, as uh, I think anyone in the gold business knows, is uh, CEO of U.S. Global Investors and Chief Investment Officer, uh, a CEO since 1989, and U.S. Global Investors, their investment managers. They have a whole suite of mutual funds. Something I've always been curious about, Frank, is the whole San Antonio connection. Like, I'm just wondering, like, how much are you tied into Texas uh, money? Are your clients... Uh, Texas-based? Are they all over the place now? They're all over the place. Uh, yeah. My weekly blog has about 40,000 readers in 180 countries. And, the, and so I moved down here from Toronto in 1990. Yes. And uh, we're known, as you said earlier, for gold. And we've won, I think, the most awards for top-performing gold fund for one year, three year. Uh, I think last year we were the lowest volatile of all the gold funds, high-sharp ratio. And we have a great, uh, Ralph Aldous is a Two degrees in geology and master's in neural economics and uh, a CFA. Uh, he's a top gun recognizing counter. Uh, so he's done a, a great job and he's also part of the team. Now, um, I guess some of the biggest news out of U.S. Global Investors is uh, you started an ETF. Could you kind of explain the process behind that? You, you couldn't beat them, so you joined them in, in some ways. What, what happened there and how has it worked out? It, well, it's really started from the frustration of flying, being global investors or flying over the world all and we just noticed that the options of flight dropped by 25%, and the cost of tickets went up 300%. Say there's no inflation, it's ridiculous. There is big inflation, and 2 million people a day fly, and they know what it's like. So with that, there was no ETF, and we saw money going into ETF, so we launched a Jets ETF, which is a, a smart data, or really, to me, it's a it's a really intelligent way, a dynamic process of looking at the factors that drive performance, and so we created a fund. It took us thousands of hours to create this uh, Jess ETF. Performs the New York Global Index. That exercise led us into gold. And we noticed that that um, a couple of years back, we were a number one gold fund. It didn't hmm. matter. Money wasn't coming into us. All the yes. money went to the GDX and GDXJ. And it was very yeah. annoying that we're performing it. And we had a better sharp ratio, and people don't care. So with that, uh, we said, okay, well, then we're going to have to come up with a product uh, that's intelligent. And what are the things that led to our greater performance? And we start to try to model it. The other thing which we noticed is that there was a creeping increase in the number of quant funds. And now it's estimated they dominate 70% of all stock trading. And I gave several speeches on this, explaining that it's the world. And that led into, we put about 8,000 hours into creating GoGold, GoAU, which is listed in the New York Stock Exchange. And its sister is Toronto, and its ticker is GoGo. Right, it's an excellent ticker. <laughs> 
And thank you. And and so what we found was that the wealthy companies have a superior business model. When you take a look at Franco Nevada with twenty one million in revenue per employee, with royalties on Newmont and Barrett's operations, who collectively only have a half a million dollars of revenue per employee, it's much more efficient use of capital. And so we in our modeling we have the three big amigos, that is Royal Gold, Franco Nevada, and now uh, Wheat and Precious. Uh, each 10%, and they rebalance each quarter, because we don't know which quarter one is going to be outperform the other. But we mm-hmm. do know that they have far outperformed the gold stocks. And what we found in the gold stocks is that there have been too many ugly mergers. That is, they never deliver what was supposed to be. There was never... And, and the factor, the number one factor in this whole exercise, John, is value per share. Per share. Mm-hmm. So yes. a lot of these guys just grew for the sake of growth, but they never grew for the shareholders on a per share basis. And so when we looked at the GDXJ, we noted that there was this massive dilution of 25% a year. Hmm. Uh, and, and so either the price of gold is going up 25% or the production is rising 25% because they're, they're doing value destruction on a per share basis. And that's why when we create this model, we only focus on those companies which quant funds would be attracted to, that uh, gold fund managers also be attracted to. And we looked at mean reversion as one sort of law of physics that, that quant funds apply, that everything reverts back to a mean, and there was the, the element of momentum. So with that, uh, we picked 28 names, three are royalty companies, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. 10% each for 30% of the portfolio, and then it's broken down to other subsections, and it's worked. I mean, it's outperformed the GDXJ um, 92% of the time on rolling 12-month periods for huh. 11 years. Yes. Uh, we launched it last year. It's outperformed the GDXJ by a wide margin. GoGo is outperforming every gold fund manager in Canada. Wow, that's tremendous. I, I think that what is really important is is that decisions by boards and decisions by executives have to be on: Are they protecting the value per share? Is a deal accreted on a per share basis? If not, then money doesn't come into you, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing. So if you're if you're just spending lots of money in exploration and you're finding nothing, well, it will show up in your stock price. It's better to grow, have slow production than to have uh, or no production than it is to have growth in production that is diluted upon a per share basis. Your stock will get penalized. Yes. Now you talk about the ugliness of the gold mining stocks uh, producers. Is is that working itself out of the system? I, mean, I know they've reorganized their companies quite a bit. Is, is that coming to an end? No, or? they're still there. I mean, you can uh-huh. still see it. Yes. Um, the other thing is, and the big debate is NAVs. Basically, I should run around that one NAV is better than the other, and so do executives. And what we found was that quant funds don't trust NAVs. They don't believe them. And the reason for that in my sort of homework was that one brokerage firm is zero discount rate. The other one is a 5% discount rate. The next mm-hmm. one's at 8% discount rate. So those varying discount rates became, make it very difficult to model and who's right or wrong. And, and in our other macro research from 2009, looking at all the write-downs that took place, most of them weren't those projects that got written down, they weren't discounted enough. And if you had taken a higher discount rate, you would have probably not made that investment in that project. And so what we made a determination was was that the, the quant funds are going to look at book value. That's what's really important to them, is the book value growing. Uh, and, and in that process, same thing was with Amazon. It's amazing that for Amazon, doesn't have any real earnings, but they have revenue growth per share, and mm-hmm. they have book value growth per share, 
and in between the Castro swings wildly looking for new uh, deployment, the same thing should happen for a mining company. So hmm. book value is a much better way to look at the mining industry, and guess what? Royalty companies, when they do a financing, it's usually agreed upon a per share basis. When right. mining companies do a financing, it's usually dilutive because they're not trading at a premium to book. I think that those companies that show the highest returns on capital, mining companies, consistently have a higher price to book, and those that have a bigger retail following have a higher price to book. All yes. the gold corp with Rob McEwen, I mean, we saw the merger went into Wheaton River and it grew, et cetera, but it still has the highest price to book. Why? Because he was the first come out with monthly dividends, and that attracts retail investors. And if you look at any public company in the U.S., the most widely held stocks have the highest price to book. When Franco Nevada first went out to the public arena, they went with a monthly dividend. Immediately, they attracted all these re- retail investors. Now, for, for compliance and regulatory, it was easier for them to do quarterly. But I think it would have been smarter for them to stay to a monthly dividend program because you get a broader – institutions will come into you no matter what, as long as you've got value metrics. The retail investor that's gold bug, he would prefer a monthly dividend, even if it's modest. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of streaming companies? Well, it's just another methodology of a royalty company. It's the yeah. same concept of taking money off the top and not worrying about what's underneath it. And the real big optionality you get from royalty companies is that they do a net present value over 10 years when they go to make these acquisitions, but they have a geological footprint that could be 40 years of mine, mm-hmm. not 10. And they get all the further reserves that are found free. They get all future growth and production free. So the royalty or streaming model is a far superior model. Now, let's just take a look at the uh, whole macro world. You've had this tremendous uh, rally in stocks in the U.S. last year, and then this year a very strong U.S. dollar. Gold is kind of flat. Uh, like, What's going on with the world economy and gold? It's amazing how fast Wall Street wants to be negative on gold. Huh. And they just jump over it. And I tried to point out that since the year 2000, the beginning of this century, bullion has outperformed the S&P 2 to 1. Wow. 200% higher performance. And last year, it was up over 13%. Mm-hmm. I believe that's great value. I mean, and having a, I've always advocated a 10% weighting rebalance once a quarter. Yes. So I think that gold has actually done very well. But the negative saying, and then it's too volatile, well, that's a false statement. That's like fake news. Gold's DNA of volatility is the same as the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. Plus or minus 1% over a daily basis. Plus or minus 20%, 70% of the time over 12 months rolling. So I think that the gold and the S&P are, are very similar when you just look at that behavior. But gold is just a great diversifier. And year to date, I think the bullion has still done better than the S&P 500. Uh, I know that our go-go has done far better than uh, any of the gold indexes, equity indexes, uh, year to date in over 12 months. So I, I think the, um, the concept that when we take a look at what's happening with the U.S. dollar hitting 3% because of 10-year government bonds hitting 3%, because mm-hmm. that yield's finally gotten to a positive rate of return. I personally believe it's way understated. I believe hmm. that the CPI, I mentioned about creating the JETS ETF, but why yes. not? Because inflation's up dramatically. And so I think that investors are slowly starting to grasp the concept that the, the law of mean reversion basically says that gold, gold mining stocks are incredibly undervalued relative to the broader S&P 500. Mm-hmm. And no matter what gauge to use, inflation is still on the rise. Uh, and if you were to use uh, the 1990 or 1980 CPI numbers, the factors that created that 
CPI, you would have inflation running between 7 and 10%. I think the, the, there's a whole debate there. The other big part I think is important for investors to recognize is peak gold. Right. We did have peak oil until the frackers had invented a way to uh, turn around exploration, development, production in America. But mm-hmm. there is no frackers in the gold business. Uh, right. It's still very expensive, very difficult to find a new deposit, and even more, almost impossible to bring it on string. So the, the gold supply crunch, I think, is ahead, coming ahead. Of, and, and I think that uh, general government debt with these rising interest rates is going to have a big impact on this sort of unsettling. So when we look at Germany, its 10-year government bond is 5%. It's one reason why they're very much buying bullion. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at Japan, it's five basis points, not 300 basis points, but five. Wow. So I'm really surprised that Japanese haven't backed up the truck and started loading up in gold uh, as an asset class because you can borrow their five basis points and uh, their currency's got to devalue on a relative basis of the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Now, you've always been ahead of, your, uh, ahead of your time there looking to Asia, looking to China and India, uh, visiting there and seeing their growth. Uh, what do you make of the China situation today and what, what effect that will have on commodities, especially you know copper and electric vehicles and that kind of thing? Well, everyone's ever since I started my China fund in '94, there's always that it's going to go bankrupt, and it's there's always something negative, negative, negative. Yes. But it's basically climbed the proverbial wall of worry, and I think mm-hmm. it's because my high school in Toronto was Jarvis Collegiate, and even in the '70s it was 30% Chinese. Chinatown was part of that's where they went to school, and we won all the national <laughs> competition in science and math, uh, gold medals, and so you. You I was able to embrace China, and the change was taking place. And what I found was that many of the best Chinese brains have gone back to China. I myself, mm-hmm. in training for our China Fund here in San Antonio, many, many young Chinese students that stayed here after graduating from university, got their CFA, and have gone back to, to China. They yeah, absolutely. They want the North American dream. They want that yeah. dream, and I believe you know they, they're basically copying everything they can that makes their society a better society. In fact, the Shanghai Stock Exchange copied everything on the Hong Kong, which is based on common law, not civil mm-hmm. law. Yes. And, and so I, I think that China has these huge mega projects, and right now the Silk Road, one road, is a very powerful, big infrastructure pipe. It's going to touch borders, 65 borders. They're funding most of it. And so I think I really, as long as that construction boom is in place, then it's good. The other thing is, is that actually a weak U.S. dollar is great for America. It's great for our exports. And mm-hmm. it seems to ignite other countries in the world. So last year, with all the negativity towards Trump, the dollar was still weak. And yes. what did that do? You had a, a buoyant emerging market and a very strong U.S. market. In particular, the best performing Dow stock was Boeing. Why is that? Weak dollar, the export jets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cheaper than Airbus. Uh, and, and I think that uh, we're going to continue. Right now, we seem to have this short-term rally, which I think will fizzle out by, by July. Are there any particular commodities that stand out, apart from gold, that uh, you think will do very well? I think copper is the real sleeper. You really believe mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the digital world, from digital money, from Bitcoin to Ethereum. Uh, this whole space is all needs copper. And if you're going to go with the Tesla cars, besides lithium batteries, you're going to those cars need so much more copper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think aluminum and copper are the big, uh, uh, great metals. Uh, mm-hmm. In the base metal sector, I think the only headwind we have really in that global market we have run with that is global PMIs. We write about it every every month that whenever the one month is below the three months, 
oil prices start to slack, and so do the base metals. And as long as they stay above 50, then the global economy is remaining strong. So the global economy is strong, but it's slowed down. Just to switch topics here a little bit, uh, you're uniquely positioned to talk about you know, the old-style gold investing and now cryptocurrencies, blockchain. You're the chairman of Hive Blockchain Technologies, which has a $400 million market cap. Uh, how do these three things play out uh, in terms of investing and the different people involved? It's a very interesting uh, area, and you're, and you're deep into it. It's quite, quite impressive. Well, thank you. Um, it's, it's, a great, um, it's a great learning. I have to force my brain to understand the crypto world. And the biggest event is next week in New York called Consensus. Oh, boy. Um, and, and my godson and my son were pushing me to learn this space, so I was trying to launch an ETF because I launched GoGo, and when I was in the New York Stock Exchange, they were telling me that they invested in Coinbase. I said, really? And USAA and military insurance is up the street is also a large gold fund. They invested mm-hmm. in Coinbase when it had a $75 million round in 2015. They is worth $8 billion. Wow. Um, and so there's something that was happening in that space. And so I did a lot of research on it. But clearly, the OSC was going to allow a ETF that you could buy Bitcoin in because mm-hmm. their, their concerns, like the SEC, was that some hacker got paid in coins and those coins showed up in the stock exchange. So there's no way it was going to happen. And I had all this knowledge, and I learned about companies like Genesis Mining, which was a private company run by mathematicians, that they were the biggest in the world uh, in selling their cloud space, their mining. So there was an opportunity to create Hive. And so mm-hmm. I put, rather than trying to launch a product and waste my money, and it all started with a call from Frank Schuster saying these young guys had found this opportunity, but he was sort of didn't really understand it totally, and did I have any knowledge? And I did. So I became their first institutional uh, investor in it. And so rather than put money into a product to try to launch, which I thought would be a, a dead end, and it was, because the SEC a couple months ago told everyone to pull out their, their filings to, to try to launch such a product in the U.S. Really? Um, wow. I put my money into Hive. And what mm-hmm. I saw was immediate cash flow. Wow. Immediate. immediate. Amazing. So hmm. our first um, uh, financing, we started off with buying two megawatts of energy consumption in Greenland and Iceland, where it's green energy. And, wow. uh, yeah. and, and so, we, and last weekend we were there with a group of analysts visiting the property in Iceland. And so you, all of a sudden you realize in my research is that Bitcoin wasn't replacing gold. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Early buyers of Bitcoin were actually gold bugs because mm-hmm. they liked the fact it was capped to 21 million coins. But the ICOs, which I think there's been so many bad deals with, uh, no, lack of full true play and timely disclosure in these ICOs, but they, they as products, consumed 11,000, there was, a, sorry, 1,000 new ICOs and $5 billion went into them. That's all speculative money that didn't wow. go to junior, it didn't go into junior, millennials are not investing in junior mining uh, right. because it's bought. It takes three to five days to open up a brokerage account. They can open a, coin, a Coinbase or in Canada, Einstein, they can mm-hmm. open an account in five minutes and all of a sudden be long $1,000 worth of uh, Ethereum. And uh, you can't do that in, in the brokerage world. And the, and, the, and the coin is very volatile. So I believe a lot of speculative money has gone into this space, not investment money. And so we, so we launched Hive. And it, it's done exactly what we thought it would do according to our business models. We made a press release that in the first quarter, we generated a 36% return in capital that quarter. We've gone from deploying 2.5 million megawatts to 22 million uh, megawatts. And by September, our business model is to go to 40, almost 45 megawatts. Boy. So we will be 
So, you know, at, at these current digital currency prices, our cash flow, our projections are right on. And it's very volatile, extremely volatile. I'll give you an idea. I talked earlier about the S&P and gold being 1% daily volatility. The cryptocurrencies are between 6 and 7%. Boy, yeah. So investors who ever speculate in, in high, it's a real business model. We make cash flow and we're building a company and we're the largest industrial-based company. We're well-funded. Institutions came in and purchased. Fidelity came in and bought 10% of the company. We raised over $200 million in the first three months. And it's all going gone towards incredible increase in this production. So think of when we first launched it with two, two using two megawatts and going to 45. That's like a 20-fold increase. Boy. Who's going to be the winner in the amongst the cryptocurrencies, or, or where do you see that going? There's so many now. Well, it's a big, well, it's a big jump ball. And, yeah. uh, I think a lot of them are just uh, pipe dreams. Uh, huh. But I think Ethereum, because it's a smart contract, and a lot mm-hmm. of the new coins are based on its protocol, it, it's a survivor. Um, yes. I think Bitcoin is just it's a unique transfer of value. I think the other part that really woke me up, John, in this whole exercise was recognizing the digital world. Because I understand the Warren Buffett's why they don't like it or Greenspan or what's their, their reservations of a transfer of value. But mm-hmm. I, I never at the beginning trusted Uber and it's worked. Right. Um, the biggest taxi cab company in the world doesn't own any taxis. Airbnb, the largest hoteler in the, in the world with owning that one hotel. So, and I would never trust it at the beginning. So the, the whole idea of money is trust. Uh, in gold, we trust. In God, we trust. In, in the idea and the concept of trust in the digital world, I think that that's what's transforming. And in Canada, you have Canadian tire money. Which yes. Transferable. I can give you my uh, coins and my paper monopoly money, but you can go buy a product at, uh, there. Well, what happens when that becomes digital? And really, a lot of these ICOs are a lot like Canadian tire money. Uh, and, and the other fact is that, said that World Golf Council and Greenspan spoke at it, and, and he said they'd done research. Now he's anti-Bitcoin, but interesting, I understand why, is that had they kept dollars, if they stopped printing U.S. dollars, in fact, the U.S. dollar becomes very volatile, like, mm-hmm. uh, like a Bitcoin. So the fact that, like, gold bugs like it, it says capped the 21 million coins, and got a lot of new believers in the digital world, trust. How can anyone trust Tinder? Yes, no, yes, no, setting up a date. Uh, yeah. But the millennials do. Uh, and so their, their element of distrust and the factors that go into it and factors that go into trust are very, very different than baby mm. boomers like myself. And right. that was my big call to embrace the digital world. Now you're spending more time with millennials in a, in a business sense. Do you see, see any route for them coming back to commodities like through uh, electric vehicles or something like that? Or, or are they gone for, for good? It's just too uh, no, gross no. an industry. I, I, I think they come back. I believe the love trade, the rise of uh, Chindia, China and India, which yes. sent the world's population. The young women and, and young men that are um, coders, they believe in bullion. And they've yeah. seen their currencies over time. So I don't think that that's going to go away. I think when they finally perfect the, the thought process of CME coming out with a, a gold-backed, um, with, with the Royal Mint, uh, coin that would be a gram of gold to trade 24-7. That's something else the stock exchange have to realize. Millennials want to trade 24-7. They don't right. want from 9.30 to 4. And they, mm. they don't really care about that. It's it's like um, they want to date anytime they want. They look at the Tinder. They look up this t- currency they want to trade. And and I think that that's, that's the new world we live in. 
How how far away from having stock exchanges that trade twenty four seven? A long way, or? Um, I don't. It's a good question. I think that you're seeing Bermuda push into it. Barbados are pushing into it. Hmm. Um, Monaco's accepted. They have a complete cryptocurrency <laughs> blockchain uh, mandate. So Malta is another country uh, that's pushing for that. I think that the neutral stock exchange could be a leader if they could turn around and, and start you know, allowing some of these coins trade twenty four seven. Right. Um, have an exchange of how they could perfect it, that would attract additional capital. Yeah. Um, but it's in motion. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it's in motion. Now, I read about the G20 coming up with uh, government policies to, for cryptocurrencies. Does that mean anything, or what, is, what does that mean? Well, absolutely. You know, the G20 finance ministers act like a OPEC. They're a cartel. Yeah. And they used to be able to synchronize trade and growth. And now it's synchronized tax and regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so to me, it's sort of funny because I watch um, the uh, China versus the U.S. and all the debates going on. But the G20 finance ministers, all these countries, they all have their own agenda. So, yeah. um, I, and I think that they have to come and embrace it because they don't want to get ahead of them. And they're doing everything to slow it down. But they would love their own digital currency. Would that be mm-hmm. perfect? The blockchain currency? It would stop counterfeiting. Yes. Uh, there's a push for toxic trade. Uh, stop illegal sorting. It would uh, stock could settle every hour on the hour. It, it would perfect it. Uh, it's never going to compete with Visa, which can do thirty thousand transactions in a second. But that's not important. There's other pretty important contracts like stocks and that could trade twenty four seven and always settle. So I think we're in that big digital space, and and there's always these uh, where you've seen Goldman Sachs all of a sudden get into the trading of this space. Now we're, we're coming up on half an hour here, so maybe I'll just ask you one more question. Just on a personal note, I find it quite impressive. Uh, you know, you're, you're very positive, lots of energy. You're, you know, you jump into cryptocurrencies. Uh, like, how do you, at your age, for anyone who's in their 50s or 60s, like, stay vital, keep open to new ideas? I think of Pierre, Peter Monk getting into mining in his mid-50s. Like, how do you do that? Because a lot of people don't, and they kind of die off. <laughs> but you're, you know, so vital. How do you do that? Yeah, I think it's being with young people. You know, yeah. I think that their energy and, and um, there's always pockets of young dynamic brains mm-hmm. that are ambitious. Um, they have a propensity to get shit done. Just seem to do whatever they, they just do things. And and I and I sort of like uh, I find I feed off of their their energy and their views. Yeah. And don't be too quick to judge them. Don't be judgmental. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing for me to do and right. not to do, and, and the hardest thing for baby boomers. But if you do that, and it's also work out all the time. Work oh. out, it doesn't matter if you're doing yoga or you're power walking or running. You have to really physically keep yourself active. Yeah. Seymour Shulik loves his three-hour power walk on Sunday morning. Oh, that's good advice for everyone. Okay, anything else you want to chip in there? No, just stay open-minded. And, uh, and I think that mining is going to uh, be critical for the success of the global build-out. China continues to show leadership in big thought processes, and President Trump, all the negativity has really pushed the EPA to be accountable for not allowing projects to go through, and I think that that's one reason why we have much stronger infrastructure spending in the U.S., which will be good for all all metals. Right, right. Oh, actually, if I can slip one more question in. You have these fantastic task cuts in the U.S. Do you see uh, Canadian mining companies heading down to the U.S.? Do you have any inquiries? or uh, It seems very enticing. No, there's nothing. Uh, I think they'd really just caught up to Canada. Uh, oh, yeah. Canada is still much more attractive on a corporate basis 
as mm-hmm. a consumer, it's very high taxes. It's, uh, yes. Your income and your investments, etc., it's extraordinarily high. So I, I don't see that. But I, I think it just creates a, a more um, a level playing field. Mm-hmm. All right. That's pretty good. Thanks for everything, Matt, Frank. Take care. Thank you, John. And a big thank you to Frank Holmes for sharing your insight. I may have said it before, but I, I think Frank is one of the great uh, communicators in the gold space and uh, innovative as well. I believe he's one of the first fund managers to have a blog for over a decade. And um, they have all kinds of free content, too, if you're not, whether or not you're a client. If you go to the U.S. Global Investors website, that's at usfunds.com, you can click on to the um, Frank Talk blog, and uh, the last year or two, Frank has also been doing a video blog, too, called Frank Talk Live, and uh, there's all kinds of information there, and and as Frank was saying, he has uh, 40,000 subscribers to his uh, blog and uh, e-newsletters. Another source is the Twitter feed of U.S. Global Investors, that's at at U.S. Funds, all one word, and that does it for this week. Uh, we have quite a few things lined up for the upcoming episodes. We have quite a bit of content from our Canadian Mining Symposium in London. Uh, just trying to figure out which ones to do first, but we have all kinds of topics there. We have a, quite an interesting interview that Trish Sewell had with uh, Peggy Kent, Peggy Whitty, in her f- former days. She sat down with Trish and uh, went through her whole career, which is a remarkable career, looking back on it and uh, also talking about the future, uh, the future and present with her uh, current company Stratabound. So quite a bit of good content coming up in the episodes ahead. Meanwhile, have a great week and talk to you next time. Bye-bye.